you take out your sermon notes, we are on our third week of a sermon series. We're calling this sermon series, The Best is Yet to Come. That is a theological and eschatological statement for us. It sounds like just a pithy saying that you would write in a graduation card you gave somebody or write to somebody who's going through a hard time. Don't worry, the best is yet to come. I kind of heard it like that when Pastor John said it to me in the beginning, and I found out now that this is a, is a core idea that we've held to here at Christ Church, but it's founded on this theological idea, on this eschatological, in-time-focused theological idea that in Christ, we know that Jesus overcame sin, that Jesus overcame death, that Jesus now reigns at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and that Jesus promises us that in Christ, He's going to overcome whatever we face in this world. We've been looking at this verse, Philippians 1, 6, that says, For I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then that's kind of Paul's summary idea, in a sense, of this whole book, that God started something in you, and God's going to bring that to completion. God's not going to leave you half done. That God's not going to start something in you and not complete it. And, and so that's what we've been talking about as we've been going through chapter 1. Today we're getting to chapter 2, and as we get to chapter 2, we're asking this question. I want you to ask this question of yourself, and the question is, how can I experience my best future. If the best is yet to come, how can I prepare myself to walk into that? How can you, if the best is yet to come for you, how can you prepare yourself to walk into it? Of course, we know that it's He who began a good work in you, that it's Christ who began a good work in you, that's going to complete it, that it's God's grace that saved us, and God's grace is going to sanctify us and complete us, but how, the question is, how do we avail ourselves to God's grace? Or how do we prepare ourselves? How do we walk into this best future God has for us? How do we allow God to do the work God wants to do in our lives to move us towards that perfecting is the, is the old word that would say for it, that maturity, that growth in grace, that fullness of the new life that God has for us? How do we move into that? Now, that's a, that's a question. I just want you to think about this for a minute. How can I experience my best future? What, what is something you can do today? What is something you could do this week? What is a change of mindset? What is a decision you can make? What is an action you can take? What is a feeling you can absorb into your life? What, what is something you can do that, that prepares you for your best future? Chances are that's not a question you ask yourself very often. The chances are that, that is, most of us don't articulate that question in our life very often. But I believe that that undergirds most of the big decisions we make in life. Anytime you're looking for a new house, you're asking the question, is this going to make my future better or worse, right? Anytime you're thinking about a career change, or you might be thinking about retirement, or you might be thinking about going back to school, you're asking this question, does this help me get where I want to be? Does this help me step into the future that I want to have? Or if you're a Christian, you might ask it from a Christ-centered perspective, same question, but does this move me towards Christ's purpose for my life? Does this help me step into God's call on my life? Every time you look at colleges for your kids, 
Or, or you think about um, a decision in your child's life. You're thinking, is this the best thing for his or her future? Is this going to help them step into that best future of their lives? Anytime you buy a new car or whatever you've got in your heart, you're thinking, is, is this going to help set me up for what God has for my life or for what I think is best in my life? That's the question that we're going to ask today. And it, we're benefited by the fact that Paul in Philippians chapter 2 is answering that question. He's, remember, under house arrest in Rome. This is 61 AD. He's writing a church that's being persecuted in Macedonia, the Philippian church. He knows this church. He loves this church. He planted this church. And he, he tells them, I'm certain that what God started in you, God's going to bring to completion. That no circumstances that we go through, and we're under house arrest, we're experiencing persecution now, but no circumstance we go through can keep us from what God has for us. That, that nothing can keep us from what God started coming to completion. And now in chapter 2, he's going to go on and tell us the attitude that we can have that brings us, that ushers us into that perfect future that God has for us. This is the one key, the most important key to moving from where we are to where God wants us to be in life is one attitude. And we need to have this attitude. The, 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 the attitude is right here. It's humility. The key to your and my best future can be summed up biblically in this word humility. If if I were to ask you, what's the one key to your future? I don't know if any of us would come up with this, but this is what the Bible says. The one key to bring us into God's best for our lives is this attitude. It's what Paul describes as the mind of Christ. It's the heart of Christ. It's the spirit of Christ. I'll read it for you, Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, right? The same mind as Christ, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Remember the context. Paul's talking about God started something in us. God's going to bring that to completion. Circumstances that we go through in life can't stop what God is doing in our lives. Nothing that we face, not, not even imprisonment in Rome, can keep us from this plan that God has for our life. But the key to stepping into that plan is right here. It's humility. It's, it's having the mind, what he says, the mind of Christ, having the same mind. It's not looking out for your own personal interests, but the interests of others. It's having that purpose, the Jesus purpose in our lives. It's really beautiful. This text, the way it lays out, it's just, it's just beautiful. Paul says, he begins with the word therefore, in other words, therefore denotes causation because of chapter 1, because nothing can stop the good work that God's starting in you. Therefore, this is what you do. And then he goes to these four if statements. We call these protesis in, uh, in, in English, these four if statements. He says, first, 
if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, let me just pause there and ask you, have any of you experienced encouragement in knowing Jesus, right? Has there been a time in your life where you've been encouraged because of Jesus or the gospel? Seriously, is there anybody here? I'm all, all alone here. Is there anybody here that's been encouraged in Christ? Yeah, you can, you can raise your hand. This is not a Pentecostal church, but you can, you can raise your hand. You, you've, we got some people that have experienced encouragement in Christ. I remember when I was 17 years old, and I, I said, God, I don't know if you're real, and if you are real, I don't know if you'd want to have anything to do with my life, but if you are, if you'll show me who you are, if you'll reveal yourself to me, I'll serve you, and I experienced this encouragement in Christ. As I, as I heard the gospel, as I heard that Jesus died for my sins, as I heard that Jesus wanted to have a relationship with me, I was encouraged. Encouragement. Now, Paul knows that the Philippians were encouraged in Christ, right? Because Paul showed up one Sunday, one Sabbath day, Saturday, and went to the riverside and preached the gospel. And a lady named Lydia said yes to Jesus and started a church in her home. He saw that they were encouraged in Christ. And so he's asking, remember, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and then the second if statement is consolation love. If there's any consolation in love, that, that's a sounds like a churchy way of saying it, but what he means is, have you ever been consoled by God's love? Have you ever felt down, but then you remembered, God loves me, and that consoled your situation? Do you know what it is to have God's love console your heart? Have you ever, you ever experienced that? I remember even as a kid, you know, being in church, I didn't even really know anything about God, but having the pastor talk to us about God's love for us, tell us the story of the prodigal son and how this child, you know, went away into the far country and fed pigs in his poverty after he wasted everything that God gave him, uh, that his father gave him, and then went back to his father's house, and as his father was looking for him, went out and hugged him and came, brought him into the house and had this great banquet. And I remember the pastor saying, that's how God feels about you. That no matter where you go, God, God loves you like that father loves that son. Have you been consoled by his love? The, the third thing that, that Paul says in these if statements is if there's any fellowship in the Spirit. He knows, right? He was there. He saw the Holy Spirit fall on these folks. He saw how they came alive spiritually, but he's asking them, do you remember? Have you experienced that fellowship of the Spirit? Anybody here experienced that fellowship of the Spirit? That you know what it is to have the Holy Spirit come into your life and, and, and strangely warm your heart and to, and to come into your, your life and, and you experience God intimate with you, the, the transcendent God that's in heaven all of a sudden is here. You, you know what that feels like? Have you experienced the fellowship of the Spirit? And then the fourth if statement that, that Paul says is if there's any affection or compassion. Those four if statements, protesis, they, they each... In a sense, I think they're laid out Trinitarian. The, the encouragement in Christ, consolation and love, fellowship in the Spirit. That consolation and love, I think, is the love of God. 
the love of the Father. Christ, the love of the Father, the fellowship of the Spirit. And then the fourth one, affection and compassion is, I think, what he's talking about is that affection and compassion that we feel in the church. When we have this experience of fellowship, of koinonia together, and you walk into church and you feel like, oh, these people love me. These people have our affection for me. They're compassionate towards me. And so Paul, Paul is saying to the Philippians, remember, he loves this church. He planted this church like 11 years, 12 years before this. He's writing this about 61 AD. He planted the church about 49 AD. And he's setting them up. He says, if you've experienced any of this, any of this stuff, if you know any of the encouragement of Christ, any of the consolation of love, any of the fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, then, this is the apodosis, then he gives three little statements there, then, one, be unified, being of the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In other words, have the same attitude that you've, had in, that you've experienced in Christ. Have that same mind, that same heart, that, that same spirit that you've experienced in Christ. He says, number two, don't be selfish. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Number three, be humble. But with humility of mind... Regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not look merely after your own interests, but also the interests of others. For Paul, this is the response to the gospel, right? If you've experienced the gospel, if you've experienced Christ's love, if you've experienced the Holy Spirit in your life, if, you, if you've experienced even the affection and the compassion in the church, that you're loved and accepted here, not because of what you've done, not, not because of, of, of what you've accomplished in life, but simply because you're a child of God. If you've experienced any of that, Paul says there's a response, and the response is humility. The, the response is to realize it's not about me, right? Think about that. The response is to recognize I didn't do this, right? I didn't console myself with God's love. I didn't experience Christ because of my self-righteousness or my goodness, I didn't make myself experience the affection and compassion. That was what somebody else did to me. That's what God did for me. God showed me God's grace in my life, and my response is humility, is humility. Now, this is not conventional wisdom. If, if you listen to your blogs or listen to talk radio or if you take a business class or you buy a self-help book and you read that or you, you talk to some personal life coach, very few of them are going to say the secret is humility, right? No politician gets up and says what we really need right now is more humble leadership. I mean, no, nobody, nobody's, nobody's on this topic. You know, our world is on the topic of self-promotion, of making your own brand, of becoming an influencer, of, of, of getting, you know, a thousand friends or a million followers. The, the world is on look at me, right? The, the, the whole message of the culture is, look at me. And humility is the opposite of that. Humility is saying, it's not about me. Let's talk for a minute about what biblical humility is. Biblical humility is not false modesty. Sometimes we hear people talk about humility, which is really false modesty. Like, uh, 
a runner may run the fastest race or a race car driver may drive the fastest race. And when they're in the winner circle, they'll ask, you know, you're the best. How did you do it? And they'll be like, oh, you know, I couldn't have done it without my crew. I couldn't. It's like, yes, that's true. But it's kind of sometimes has that feel of look at me, no, don't look at me, look at me, you know, that kind of, that kind of, in a way of trying to draw attention to ourselves by saying we don't deserve it, so I deserve more, that, that kind of false humility. Have you ever, you ever experienced that? Sometimes we're trained to do that kind of thing, like, like I couldn't do it without, but they, it's really, that, that false humility, biblical humility is not that kind of false modesty. Biblical humility is not, on the other hand, just putting ourselves down. It's not, it's not falsely falsely modest about something we are really good at, and it's not putting ourselves down about something we're not good at. It's not going around and telling everybody how we stink at this or that or whatever. That's not humility. Humility, biblical humility, is in a sense, it's not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. It's, it's not that we look down upon ourselves. It's that we think about ourselves less because we look at, at who God is. You see, our perspective in life, and this is unfortunate, but it's part of the 20th century, uh, 21st century now, is that we spend too much time looking in the mirror. We spend too much time looking in the phone. We spend too much time looking at our own calendar. We spend too much time looking at our own goals and our own achievements. And, And what we end up doing is we end up seeing life as if life revolves around us. Biblical humility is having our perspective on the divine, on God, and recognizing that there's a creator who created everything, including us, that we get our life from outside of ourselves. We get our life from another person, from God, that God is the one who gave us life, who sustains our lives, and we're part of this creation, and this whole creation is here to glorify God. And when you get that perspective, what you get is humility. Humility is recognizing it's not all about me. In fact, none of it's about me. It's all about God, and I'm one part of this big creation, this big show that's all about God. It's not thinking less about ourselves, like I'm nothing, I'm unworthy. It's thinking about ourselves less, because our our focus in life is on this, this divine life, this life of God, and this kingdom that's outside of ourselves, and this world that's outside of ourselves, and God's ushering us into that. And the key to your best life is having that, that humility. The, 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 the key to stepping from what God's already done in our lives to what God wants to do in our lives is that change of attitude. That attitude that it's not about me, it's about God. When you, when you change that attitude, okay, the world's attitude is that it's all about me, right? My, my job is here for me, right? My, my family's here for me. The church is here for me. My friends are here for me. My country's here for me. It, everything in life is about, does it help me have the life I want? That, that's what the world calls us to think about. When you come into this type of new way, biblical way of thinking, you realize there's a God in heaven, and I'm here for God, and my family's here with me for God, and my church is here, and I'm part of this church 
for God. And my resources are here for God, and my gifts are here for God. And my breath and my life and as many days as God gives me, they're for God. That, that all of this is not about me, it's about God. That is the key, that attitude, that shift of mind, that having the mind of Christ, having the spirit of Christ, having the, the oneness of the attitude of Christ, that, that shift is what opens us up to then step into what God has for you. So Paul says, number one, that that's the key to your best future. And then number two in your sermon notes, he's going to give us the example of your best future. And the example of your best future is Jesus. This is, Paul gives us the key. If I could tell you one thing to get you from where you are to where God wants you to be, it's humility. Paul says, and, and, and look at Jesus. Jesus is going to show you how this is done. Look at verse 5 through 11. It says, have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus eternally, the second person in the Trinity, living eternally with God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He found, he, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul takes these verses, it's oftentimes... In the 20th century, there was a, a German uh, theologian, biblical scholar um, named Ernst Lohmeyer, who he was so mesmerized by these verses, verse 6 through 11, that he came up with this theory that Paul didn't just sit down and write these. Paul actually isn't writing. He has a, a scribe that's writing. Timothy's there writing with him. But, but that Paul didn't just write these. That th those verses, 6 through 11, came from an ancient hymn that Paul inserted here, like he was singing it, and he's like, oh, that's beautiful, that's perfect, and they put in, because it's just so poetic. In fact, a lot of our scripture translations will put above here Christ's hymn, or a lot of them will set it in verse for this reason, but, but it's, it's this beautiful rendition of how Jesus humbled himself, we get three verses on that, that Christ, that God might exalt Christ, and then three verses on that, and I'll walk you through what I mean. Under Jesus' humility, it says first that Jesus gave up heaven. You look in your sermon notes or look on the screen if it's still there. It says, although he existed in the form of God. Although Jesus eternally existed as the second person in the Trinity, as Jesus eternally was part of this divine Godhead, he didn't grasp at it. He, he didn't seek to hold on to it. In fact, exactly the, the opposite. He gave up heaven, right? He left heaven and came down and became one of us. He left his divine position, his position as creator, and came down. It's crazy to even say this, but became part of creation. The creator, eternally spirit, came down and took on human flesh. The creator became part of the creation, and he was born, you remember, in Bethlehem. He was born to an impoverished, 
people, an impoverished family, an oppressed community. He was born as an infant in a cave, in a barn in Bethlehem. The most exalted became the lowest. The scriptures became a bondservant for us, a slave for us. And if that wasn't enough, that he lowered himself from heaven to earth, he also lowered himself to death, death on a cross. It says in verse uh, 8, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this God became a human being, born in an impoverished community of impoverished people, and, and then he taught, and then he went on to die. The eternal God died, but not just any death. He died the most humiliating death ever conceived by human beings, where they stripped him naked, and they hung him on a cross and put spikes through his wrists and his ankles, and he sat there for hours as his enemies gathered around him and mocked him and jeered at him. The, the most exalted gave up his most exalted position to become the lowest possible. Now, if that were the totality of the scriptural message, it would be the worst message ever written, right? That would be the most horrifying tale ever conceived by any human being if that were the gospel message. But the gospel message isn't in there because he spent three days in a grave and then he was exalted. He humbled himself, and then God exalted him. And, and, the, and the first ways that God exalted Jesus, you see in verse 9, if you're looking on the sermon, it says, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name. The, the name of this person who died as a criminal, hung on a cross, is now a name above every name. He was given the lowest position, and now he has the most exalted name, and now he's Lord of all. It says in verse 10, it says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven. All the angelic beings are bowing before him. And on earth, all humanity will bow before him. And under the earth, all the demonic beings will bow before him. That at the name of of Jesus, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And, and so what Paul is saying is that God is giving us an example of how God's economy works. That the second person in the Trinity, Jesus himself, he didn't grasp onto his Godness, right? He didn't try to exalt himself. He didn't try to glorify himself. He the way that the entire creation and heaven and, and, the, and hell itself will all recognize Jesus isn't that Jesus puffed himself up, right? It isn't that Jesus drew attention to himself. It's the exact opposite. It's that Jesus lowered himself and became a human being. He was born in Bethlehem in this little tiny town in this impoverished colony in the first, in the first century. And he lived this modest life. He was a traveling rabbi who had a dozen close followers and a few dozen extended followers, ultimately died on the cross, 
the worst possible criminal death, the most humiliating death. But from that, can you imagine? This story goes nowhere if God doesn't exalt him. From that, today, two billion people call him Lord. And, and Paul's writing in 61 AD, where probably there was 10,000 people that recognized him as Lord at that time. But, but Paul already sees what's going to happen. That a day is going to come where everything in heaven and everything on earth and everything below the earth is going to recognize that he is Lord. Why? Because he humbled himself. Now, if this were the only scripture in the Bible that talks about this attitude of humility, that the way to be exalted is to humble yourself, if this were the only place in scripture that it talks about this, I would be a little embarrassed to even talk about this. It just, it's so radical in our world. It's so foreign to us, this idea that the way to become what God created you to become is to become less. It, it's, it's almost ridiculous. But the thing is, if you read through the Scripture, you'll see this same teaching everywhere. Have you noticed that? I'll just go through a quick summary of some of these verses. But tell, I'll just tell you, as you read through the Bible with us, we're reading through the New Testament this year, you will see this theme everywhere in the Bible, that humility is the key to exaltation. When you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Look at James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Luke 14.11 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Therefore humble yourself under the, mighty name of, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. James 4, 6 says, But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 20, 16 says, The first shall be last and the last first. Micah 6, 8 from the Old Testament says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Proverbs eleven two says, When pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. And there's dozens and dozens of other verses that say the same thing that the first will be last and the last first, that the way to get the seat of honor is to take the last seat, that the way to become great is to become the servant of all. This is a theme that you see throughout the entirety of Scripture, but it's so countercultural, and especially in our culture today. For our culture today teach us that if you want to get ahead, you've got to grasp at it. You've got to strive for it. You've got to work at it. If you want to get the top rung, you've got to climb that ladder. If you want to move up, you've got to dress for the job you want, not the job you're in. You've got, you got to promote yourself. You've got to get out there and make a brand. You've got to get out there and, and become an influencer. And if, you, if you're ever on the Internet, you'll see thousands and thousands of articles telling you how you can make yourself an influencer, how you can lift yourself up, how you can... How you can for, Promote yourself to get the life you want. There's probably a thousand seminars that have that title in it. How to promote yourself to get the, the life you want. And it's the exact opposite of the scriptural message. The scriptural message is that the life that God created us for, the means to get there, is to give ourselves up. It's to let go of ourselves. It's to die to ourselves. It's to carry our cross daily and allow God to lift us up. 
Humility is, in this sense, the rarest of all virtues, especially in 21st century America. Every politician, every influencer, every sports star will tell you that the, the key is promote yourself, self-promotion. And that value of self-promotion, it's, it's, it's seeped into every area of life and even into the church. Where even in the church, we buy into that idea that we've got to make our life, right? We've got to earn this. And we all know salvation is by grace, and so we have this basic idea in our lives that God saves us by His grace. He forgives our sins freely. He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. But then we got to put the work in, right? Then we've got to live up to that expectation. Then we've got to make ourselves worthy of God. And, and the Scripture's just saying, no, the way to get into the life that God has for you is to surrender yourself, like a grain of wheat, to go in the ground and die, that it may birth much grain, that it, it may produce a harvest, that the way to the life we're lo looking for is to become less, to lower ourselves. That if you want the front seat, the way to do it is to take the last seat. That if you want a fruitful life, the way to do it is to lay down your life. That if you want to be exalted with Christ, the way to do it is to become a servant of all. That the first will become the one, will be the one who serves all. And that the way to the life that you were created for is to give yourself over to God. That's the main idea here, is that the, the key to our best future is humility. The, the key to what we were created for is to let go. And, the, and our, our illustration, our example in this is Jesus. That's what Jesus did. Jesus let go of everything, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father where he... Uh, rules, and where he one day will come again and establish a new heaven, new earth. And all of us are invited into that by grace. The key to that kind of grace is humility. It's letting go of this self-focused life and, and adopting a life where we see God at the center. Let's pray that maybe so. Lord God, we thank you that, that you that you have started a good work in us, that you've invited us to be your children, that you gave us a life, that you offer us eternal life, you offer us forgiveness of sins, and all you say is just, just receive this gift. We confess, Lord, that so often we have made this about ourselves. We have believed that we have to earn it, we have to grasp for it, we have to deserve it that it's up to us to make this life that, that, that we desire, instead of just receiving it as a gift. And so I pray right now, Lord, that you would, you would give us the attitude of Christ, that you'd give us the mind of Christ, that you'd give us this, this same purpose that Christ has, that we might become servants of all, that we might let go of that which binds us, that we might promote you and not ourselves and step into this fullness of life that you offer us. Thank you, Lord, for the grace.
the grace that called us. And we pray now that you would perfect us in that same grace.